bad enough on the beach, but it's worse in the sea. Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your eclectic weekly guide to the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and we're here every week on public radio and whenever you want on podcast. Thanks for joining me this evening. If we were to take a poll, most people wouldn't hesitate to identify this voice as belonging to none other than Bob Dylan. You'll probably be surprised to hear, as I was when I first heard the track, that the vocalist isn't Bob Dylan. It's John Lennon doing an impression of Bob Dylan. Many of us tend to think of Dylan as having this instantly recognisable singular type of voice. You know, the nasal twangy and slightly gruff burr that has been compared over the years to such things as a death rattle and sandpaper. But as we hope to illustrate tonight, the idea of there being a, quote, quintessential Dylan voice is completely bogus. The fact is, every voice changes over time and singers rarely sound the same at 20 as they do at 50. Take Madonna, for example. And contrary to popular belief, Dylan's voice has evolved more than most great singers during the 50 years or so that he's been on the circuit. A whole lot of musical, not to mention life experiences, separate this recording of Dylan singing In the Evening in 1961 from this recording of Red Cadillac and Black Moustache from 2000. Who you've been loving since I've been gone Long tall man with a red coat on on tonight's show, we're going to take a close look at Bob Dylan's many voices and we'll also explore the artist's passion for wordless improvisation and habit of modifying his approach to a single song so that no two versions of it sound the same. I can think of no better person to lead us on this exploration of Bob Dylan's singing chops than Devon Strolovich, who perhaps knows more about the artist's music than any other person I've ever met. And I've certainly met some serious Dylan fans in my time. Hi, Devon. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Devon is a Roots music aficionado and a public radio guy. He's the host and executive producer of Fog City Blues, a great weekly radio show that airs on Wednesday evenings on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. Devon's programme is available, like Voicebox, on the radio station's online music player anytime. Devon also produces the widely syndicated Philosophy Talk public radio series and is the associate producer of the Bluesmobile with Elwood Blues. Oh, and he also has a PhD in linguistics. Devon, let me start by asking you this. What draws you to Bob Dylan? It was a rainy night in Paris. Ah. Um, I sort of knew Bob Dylan's music as just part of the rock canon, but I very much became an aficionado enthralled in the, I spent two years living in Paris, these rainy Northern European nights when, and I was reading a book called Invisible Republic by Griel Marcus about these recordings he did in 1967 and just delving deeper and deeper. It was the Napster era. It was easy to get the recordings. And, uh, 
suddenly found myself listening night after night to this sort of this slightly disturbed, slightly claustrophobic guy singing these these really overwrought lyrics to me. I fully knew who Bob Dylan was. It wasn't a sort of discovery of the person, but it, I had never spent you know night after night listening. And so since then, you've made it the main object of your study, I hear. It's, uh, it's, it's the follow-up to linguistics, yes, Bob Dylan scholarship. Okay. So do you play his music regularly on your show on Fog City Blues? As much as I can assume people will tolerate it. <laughs> uh, anytime someone, a blues musician or some other associate's got a birthday, I try to find a Dylan you know, track to play. Uh, he just recently released a new album, so... Each week, I deployed the album track by track, and he re- came through San Francisco a few weeks ago, and of course, the show being a concert digest sometimes, that was ultimately the most legitimate reason to play. Okay, but do you feel like you have to have a reason? You don't ever feel comfortable just playing his stuff for fun? It's, it, it can feel a little too personal just to throw it on there. Okay, ah. so you have a massive collection of Dylan recordings, including some very obscure ones. Can you tell us a bit about your collection and what the story is behind it? Well, you know, I had a few cassette tapes from uh, back in the day that just sort of because Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited, album you've heard of, it's three bucks, buy it. It's got like a Rolling Stone. But uh, it really got expansive with the basement tapes, these bootlegged recordings from 1967. There is an official release um, that many people may know, but it's actually about, that's about 15 recordings. The entire set is about 100. Mm. Um, Dylan is, and, and and some tracks from that those sessions became sort of the world's first bootleg, the first recordings to become part of people's collections as something that was sort of obscure and (laughs) get a load of this. Every single time that man has sung into a microphone, it's been recorded Mm -hmm. since the early 60s. So my collection actually pales in comparison to what's possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, virtually every concert he's given is is recorded somewhere, every cover version of one-off recording of anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just a thrill to hear something new. So how do you go about collecting his music then? I mean, are you mostly going on eBay or are you looking... How, how are you going about building this collection? The internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard um, of it. But there are, you know, there was a period, and maybe it's still going on, when when used music stores, if you can remember those, mm. would actually have these CDs with, with track listings and information and the odd essay that were not necessarily Sony product mm-hmm. um, but were not necessarily the, the canonical recordings mm-hmm. and so to come across that in the real world and, uh, and I've got a, a substantial amount of that is kind of the most the most thrilling thing to find sure is a long time sleeping all by yourself Sure gets lonesome, baby, sleeping all by yourself. And you're loving somebody else, she's sleeping with somebody else when the sun goes down. If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox to our series, including how to make a much needed donation to support our project, which is independently produced and non-profit. Please visit voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe and easy through our online PayPal link. 
I'm in the studio tonight with Devon Strolovich, the host of Fog City Blues on KALW. We're talking about the voice, or rather the many voices, of Bob Dylan. We just heard a longer excerpt from a 1961 recording of In the Evening from Dylan's Minnesota hotel tape. Devon, how old was Dylan when he laid down this track, roughly? About 20. Okay. And what do we get from this recording about Dylan's voice? That he, that, that he was a funny guy. He, uh, he impressed a lot of people and uh, got them to remark on how funny he was to be around and how sort of odd and compelling he was to watch perform. That particular recording uh, was 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 made the same month that he did his the recordings that became his official self-titled debut album, which are just mu- compelling as they are, humorless. Hmm. Um, whereas this Minnesota hotel tape, where he's just being recorded by a friend uh, on a trip back to Minnesota, and I think it's now publicly available, actually, um, they're just really funny, and it's a repertoire that that doesn't show up. Much beyond that, but but it sort of is the culmination of his formative years from high school student who wants to be in Little Richard's band to the first public presentation of Bob Dylan folk singer. Mm-hmm. So a recording we're about to hear of Desolation Row from 1965 sounds quite different vocally speaking from the 1961 recording we just heard, even though only four years have lapsed between the two tracks. Was Dylan deliberately trying to change his voice, do you think, Devon? I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, from 61 to 65, he goes through what we would conventionally call the, the, the folk singer period, playing almost always just by himself, no accompaniment. But in 65, begins recording not for the first time, but begins recording with a band, and that changes how he has to, de- you know, deliver the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, Desolation Row appears on Highway 61 Revisited in a somewhat jauntier arrangement um, with some sort of flamenco guitar accompaniment. This one is uh, sort of much more dire. In a way, the humor's drained. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a kind of progression from the earlier recordings. Um, to this, I don't, I don't think there. I, don't, I can't say there was anything deliberate. I think the the voice he puts on for this recording fits the mood of the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, what should we listen out for in the two tracks that we're just about to listen to? Uh, we're going to hear Desolation Row, but we're also going to hear Visions of Johanna. Well, it's funny. Uh, from 1961 to 65 uh, is the folky period, and what people can remember. And as he as he starts to play, record record music with a band. There's there's a great transformation in the voice, but from 65 to 66 things change a lot also because Visions of Johanna, recorded in 66, comes from an album primarily recorded down in Nashville mm. with Nashville musicians um, and Robbie Robertson uh, later from the band uh, on guitar. But 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 the the vibes created in those you know less than a year apart sessions um, is very different. Um, in interviews at the time, he might say, you know, there were a lot more substances flowing through him by the time he's recording the uh, 1966 tracks. Mm. And it's it's a sound that he would later describe as this thin, wild mercury sound. That's from mm-hmm. a much later interview. But but that's what I was listening to in Paris when I first got sucked in. This sort of haze of of haze haze of metal. Well, it sounds very much in opposition to what you would call a folk, think of as a folky sound, right? Exactly. I mean, it's funny. More wood. <laughs> more wood. Uh, you know, this would this is what would get called folk rock, and there's all sorts of interviews where he makes fun of being asked what he thinks of folk rock. Um, but the 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 sound itself, 
Um, he, you know, he spent a year being extremely public in terms of making a mockery of interviews and interviewers. A film was made of this 1965 tour. It hadn't come out yet, but like the hipster persona was now in place. He's wearing polka dot shirts. He's got a huge bouffant head of hair. And then to hear this sort of guy in an apartment with uh, heat pipes coughing, mm-hmm. heat pipes just cough, like wondering about this spectral presence while the world goes to pot around him. Mm-hmm. Suck me in. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlors filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand's tied to the tightrope walker. When you're trying to be so quiet We sit here stranded We're all doing our best to deny it And Louise holds a handful of rain Tempting you to defy This is Voice Box and I'm Chloe Veltman. On this week's show, I'm in the studio with Fog City Blues host and Bob Dylan expert Devin Strolovich. We're talking about the rainbow colours of Dylan's voice. The tracks we just heard came from the mid-1960s, Desolation Row and Visions of Johanna. Are there any particular singers that Dylan was inspired by in terms of experimenting with and developing his vocal style, Devin? Who are some of the artist's greatest vocal influences? Well, you know, what you hear... At the start of his recorded career is clearly Woody Guthrie, uh-huh. and he sort of took on that hobo oaky persona, mm-hmm. which, you know, Woody Guthrie himself was a bit of a put-on as well. It's a mighty hard road that my poor hand has told. My poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. Um, but he's often cited through the years in various ways, Hank Williams, mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a, just a model for a musical life. I mean, maybe not the end of it, but as a sound and as, as a songwriter. I can settle down and be doing just fine Till I hear an old freight rolling down um, and in later years, he's, he, he, he worked uh, recently with Ralph Stanley from the Stanley Brothers. Oh, dead. Oh, dead. Won't you spare me over till another year? As far as contemporary influences, I, I'm not sure... Uh, th- he, I don't. I don't re- recall him pointing to any, and I don't think there are any obvious. I think. I think Bob Dylan has a limited set of pipes, mm-hmm. you know, 
and so I don't I don't think he's going for to emulate anyone's sound mm-hmm. uh, when he sings. I think it's a question of of do, doing a lot, a lot with a little. And fever ask of you. Yes, as one I'll ask of you Won't you please see That my grave Is kept clean I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. Tonight we're chatting about Bob Dylan's singing voice with the host of Folk City Blues, Devon Strolovich. Devon, you described the track we just heard, a setting of the old blues standard, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean, as an elephant in Dylan's vocal closet. Why did you use those words? Well, it's uh, that's a recording from 1967 in those the basement tape sessions where he's uh, in a basement in Woodstock, out of public view, just recording without any eye necessarily to the public hearing it. But the voice is markedly different either from what people had heard, been hearing the year before on Blonde on Blonde, or what would come out shortly thereafter on John Wesley Harding, which uh, you know has tracks like All Along the Watchtower. That voice, that sort of slightly smoother upper register sweeter sound comes out on a set of recordings he released in 1969 called Nashville Skyline, Hmm. which was certainly in comparison to what he had done before, pure country. And it was kind of, for a lot of people, a nightmare of unethical music making (laughs) for the symbol of the counterculture to come out with a country album in Mm -hmm. 1969. This was after the accident that took him out of public view. He came back into public view as a a much more sort of humble, less brash guy. I think at the time he said it's because he quit smoking. Mm -hmm. He had recently had a couple of kids. But it's really interesting to hear this voice a year and a half before that just kind of slip its way into this one recording. It's, It's a song that he also recorded on his debut album, again, in a much more dire uh, kind of recording of of the of the old blues man. This this was a very strangely sort of laid back auto harp laden. Let me just sing to you. <laughs> I really like it. I like the way he uses his upper register, and I, I don't really understand why people reacted so strongly against. Uh, it, to me, it seems much more mellifluous his voice in this recording. And I don't think it was the voice per se. I mean, he he ended up with a hit from the Nashville skyline, "Lay Lady Don't Lay." Right. Um, I think it was. It. it I mean, it, it 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 licensed country rock to occur, but mm. up to that point, con- mu- country music was this professionalized. You know, it's what they accused the Beatles of, the folk movement accused the Beatles of earlier on, or when Dylan went electric, of selling out. Mm. Country music, in a way, was selling out at that point because it was such a professionalized, commercialized music. And and, and they're not quality songs from a songwriting point of view, but he it, it had a definite sound and that voice suited mm. it, yes. And... Why Why do you think did he give up singing in this way? Because, I mean, it's definitely of that specific period and you don't hear that voice, that exactly that timbre come up again later. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation. It has a, a little too much sort of biographizing for my taste. I mean, in, in knowing certain things about his life and, and, and 
you know, decide and, and associating those with musical decisions made at the same time with no real evidence other than the, the correlation. Um, I mean, there's this curious recording on his on his next album, Self Portrait, of the boxer Paul Simon song, um, where he's double tracked in harmony with himself using that sweet voice and sort of the back to raspy voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that couldn't have been but deliberate. Mm-hmm. And is that a is that a, a send off to the old period or just an experiment? Who knows? After this, he sort of re-enters a voice that was familiar. Um, maybe starts playing the part of Bob Dylan in a way that, like you know, the country singer wasn't. That was an authentic. I'm going to sing something new, mm-hmm. and he moved on. Well, let's move on to, we're going to leave the 1960s behind and move to uh, Dylan's so-called (laughs) mid-period. Judging from your enthusiasm, Devon, for the recordings that you proposed we play to illustrate this period of Dylan's singing career, you seem to really like the way in which Dylan used his voice in the 1970s and 80s. What what appeals to you about uh, the way that the artist approached singing at that time as as opposed to the way that he was singing before then or since? Well, part of it is the, the underdog nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had three number one albums in the 1970s. So to actually say that like this is a period when he's heavily criticized mm-hmm. is bogus. Uh-huh. Uh, he was very popular, clearly. Yeah, I played to a, he played to 115,000 people at Blackbush in 1978 or something. So so you know, symbol of the 60s actually has a major revival in the 70s um, and becomes an adult rock musician, and that's just it. I think you know it's a little less juvenile. It's mm-hmm. a little less all over the map. Um, Certainly the first album people think of as, as his 70s reemergence is Blood on the Tracks. Mm-hmm. This is an album um, that he recorded at first uh, as uniformly as his early albums with a, a soft vocal delivery, just in a, car, a guitar and bass accompaniment. He ended up re-recording half the album. There's a, you know, people rage on with the debate about should the original Blood on the Tracks have gone out or was it the, the better recordings later? But he, he he undertakes tours also in the 1970s that that really start this process of of rearranging the songs from the way they were first recorded on the album, and uh, and I find that very exciting to hear the evolution of the song continue so that you know the the first recording is just a stop along the way mm-hmm. and the, the the experimentation really begins in earnest. Well, let's listen to a classic Dylan track from 1974. Now, simple twist of fate from Blood on the Tracks. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark She looked at him and he felt a spark Tingle to his bones Twas then he felt alone And wished that he'd gone straight And watched out for a simple twist of fate They walked along by the old canal A little confused, I remember well Then stopped into a strange hotel You're listening to Voicebox, chatting with me, Chloe Veltman, about the many voices of Bob Dylan, his blues music aficionado, and the host of KALW's Fog City Blues, Devin Strolovich. For more detailed playlist information, please visit voicebox-media.org, where you can also check out our scheduled podcasts and other useful information about our series. We just heard Simple Twist of Fate from Blood on the Tracks, the famous album that Bob Dylan released in 1974. Devon, what's special about the recording we just heard? I, I guess the word is intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, you know, the, the, the sound of the track is, is made especially interesting for me as a guitarist because he's using a, an open E tuning. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these very strange fingerings that were a lot of fun to emulate. Um, but all, all of the original Blood on the Tracks recordings done in that open E and in this, in this very restrained, hushed, conversational mm-hmm. storyteller uh, voice, which, um, you know, given again what we know was going on in his life at the time, some marital troubles, leads some people to sort of, th- this is when, I mean, the, the 60s lyrics have people just dissecting images and whatever. Here it gets personal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily go there. It's not made more interesting because this image can be traced to some argument he had with his now ex-wife. Mm. Um, but that that he's making these kinds of recordings and singing these kinds of songs inspired by whatever happened last week or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the I sort of like the uniformity of sound. Maybe that. Uh, so so um, how much does the quality and character of his voice reflect what's going on in his life outside of his musical pursuits? I don't. I don't know that the the vocal performance itself reflects any particular um, personal strife. Mm. I think, and what does happen is that, um, according to certain, you know, see people writing about this album, when he re-records the half these songs, the lyrics become less personal. Mm. The images become sort of gra- grander and less less tied to a specific life. Whether those images were tied to his life or the character whose voice he's singing in. <sighs> Who can know? The fact that you then know some biographical details creates this self-fulfilling, you know, idea. Well, we've got a couple of songs to play now that come from more obscure recordings and illustrate some interesting colours in Dylan's voice during this period of his career. What can you tell us, Devon, about Dylan's take of You're a Big Girl Now from the rundown rehearsal recording made in 1978 and the 1987 recording based on a live concert in London of I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine? Well, the You're a Big Girl Now... Um, from the rehearsals, that's for the 1978 tour, where he was playing with the biggest band he'd put together at that point. Um, and it's a song from Blood on the Tracks, which was released as as a much more first recorded in the same style as Simple Twist of Fate, then re-recorded with a slightly different guitar arrangement, but still a very sort of intimate recording. Here, he's got the band and the honking sax doing it as this like sultry, bluesy come on. Mm-hmm. It's still got uh, lyrics describing a singer who's kind of in turmoil. I'm going mm-hmm. out of my mind mm-hmm. with a pain that stops and starts. But with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, with a smirk on his face. Mm-hmm. I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine is from John Wesley Harding in 1967. Itself an intimate recording, but a much more severe sort of sound with, uh, with a, a sort of, again, the Nashville ensemble. Here it's sort of, there's a tinkling piano He's kind of bleeding a little, bleating, mm-hmm. I mean to say, mm-hmm. bleeding. <laughs> um, and, it, and you know, you've got the, the backup singers with this sort of gospel hum backing. Dylan trying to, you know, the preaching period's over, but it's, it's maybe still in his blood. It's just, it's a, it's, it's, it's a compelling listen to me. Well, let's uh, hear those two tracks now. You're a big girl now, and I dreamed I saw St. Augustine. Was short and sweet 
it nearly knocked me here off on my feet and I'm back in the rain Tuned into Voice Box. I'm Chloe Veltman, and with me in the studio for a discussion about the diverse vocal stylings of Bob Dylan is DJ and Dylan aficionado Devin Strolovich. We just heard two recordings from 1978 and 1987, respectively, of You're a Big Girl Now and I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. I'd like to take a little step sideways now and talk briefly about Bob Dylan's skills as a duettist. He sung with dozens of artists over the years, from Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, George Harrison and Eric Clapton, to Kinky Friedman, Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris and Paddy Smith. Devon, you dug up this great recording of Dylan singing a duet live with Joan Baez. It's from the same period that we've been talking about, the 70s, and the song is I Pity the Poor Immigrant. Let's listen to part of the song and then talk about Dylan's singing voice in harmony with others. It's interesting to me how Dylan takes the top line in this track rather than Baez, who has the higher voice. I pity the poor immigrant It's not like male voices never take the upper part in a co-ed duetting situation, but in this instance, you can hardly hear Baez. What, if anything, Devon, does this tell us about Dylan's aptitude for an interest in blending his voice with others? <laughs> I wonder, it might just tell us in this case a lot more about his relationship with, with Joan Baez. Right, yeah, you know, I guess so. She's sort of responsible for nurturing his first public persona in a way. Um, but as a duetist, he, you know, he stands out can't not stand out he almost the timbre of his voice almost never blends mm. with his musical partner his pacing never blends Emmy Lou Harris who you know sang back up on some of the songs on desire the sort of record around that time said it was an incredibly frustrating experience he would just shift here and there without any explanation and that last recording uh this the, the aspect of it that uh, stands out for me is sort of the sustained notes at the end of every phrase. Mm. We don't necessarily necessarily think of Dylan as someone who's got. I, I think I dissed him earlier as someone with chops. Mm. You know, he he bleats out what he can and sort of mm. whatever caricature you choose. But here, he and this woman who who has this operatic voice. I mean, Joan Baez. You know, that's the quality I would you know would first think of when I think of her. They they. They've got three, four seconds of just just listening to them hold a tone, mm-hmm. and it's and, and especially on this particular tune, which is again radically rearranged from the original recording on John Leslie Harding, it's a hoot to watch. He, he in, and if you watch the footage, it's it was which is on YouTube. Yeah, um, from the Hard Rain uh, TV special 
back in the day, you can see him glancing over to her like either in taunt, possibly in sympathy, but also in a little like, ha, watch this. Well, let's move forwards to more recent times now and and we'll listen to a 1994 version of Bob Dylan singing I Want You. It comes from an MTV Unplugged outtake and it sounds not at all like how the song sounded in the 1960s when Dylan first recorded it. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voice Box. Tonight I'm here with Fog City Blues host Devon Strolovich and we're discussing Bob Dylan's singing voice. We just heard a 1994 MTV Unplugged version of Dylan's 1960s classic, I Want You. To find out more about Voice Box, please visit voicebox-media.org and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Plus, our free weekly podcast series is available on iTunes. Devon, uh, apologists for Dylan's voice would probably have a hard time making a case for the positive side of the singing on this track that we just heard. I mean, it's super husky and almost rambling. Plus, it bears little resemblance to what most people would recognise as the song I Want You. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So, But what's your read on, on what Dylan is doing with his voice here? Sort of drawing it out. I mean, sort of forcing you to, 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 to recast this set of lyrics and this song I mean, I don't want to give him too much credit. The band he's got playing with him in the mid-90s there um, usually featured some some pedal, some pedal slide, mm-hmm. um, that syrupy, drippy country sound. A lot of rearrangements of his songs end up sounding like this. This one somehow is particularly unique in the context of that MTV Unplugged session because what got released was not nearly as impressive and interesting. It was sort of uniform, more uniform, thumpity-thump, Highway 61, here we play it again, we're a rock band. <laughs> Somehow this one just created a mood. And it was important that I heard it first before I saw it, because mm. watching him, he doesn't look interested in singing this at all. Mm. Um, but hearing it, I thought it was the most sultry, intimate way to I mean it's one of his simplest choruses ever right I want you I want you I want you I want you so bad to turn that and maybe people don't have the patience to listen to him say that over the course of 45 seconds uh, (laughs) as opposed to the jauntier you know blonde on blonde recording where we're there we're done all right let's move on Um, this thing is just dripping with it with atmosphere Mm mm-hmm Okay. Well, we're going to play another couple of recordings of more recent Dylan tracks. Again, we're going to hear startlingly different qualities to the way the singer brings his song to life. Um, what should we listen out for, Devin, in the in the 2000 recording of Red Cadillac and Black Moustache from 2000, a short excerpt of which we heard near the start of tonight's show, and Someday Baby from 2006? Well, Red Cadillac and a Black Moustache is a tune Dylan had to have known from, from the 50s listening to it on the radio. He played it on tour a couple of times in the mid-80s with Tom Petty, much more standard sort of rock band arrangement. Here he's revisiting it as a, a part of a tribute album to Sun Records. Um, and he's also he also goes through a couple of vocal sort of persona. 
um, it gets sharpens, the voice sharpens, it hushes, it, there's a lot in it for this sort of tame recording that it is. So mm. I like it very much. And Someday Baby? Someday Baby illustrates that he um, is perverse about deciding what to release. Mm-hmm. The longer the sessions f- go on, the more likely he is to reject something that was good <laughs> and either re-record it or abandon it. I don't know the exact chronology here, but Someday Baby, it's it, basically an old blues that he's revived and taken, I believe, authorial credit for on Modern Times in 2006. But what's released, and I think was actually, you know, the radio single, is just tepid. Mm. Um, I think they made an iPod commercial out of it, <laughs> uh, which I guess doesn't help the sort of story you want to tell about it. But it's just a, it's just, it's just a blues band playing along um, for six minutes. This one is dark and brooding and sounds like this singer really really needs to be singing at that moment mm-hmm. the other the other the, the release take is just so perfunctory this one came out a couple of years later on one of the official bootleg releases um so it's a nice quality well produced at this point um and and the pacing and and the the the, the, the i guess mystery is one way to say it in his voice and again the wink the smirk hmm. comes across so much more than the release take you use this word smirk a bunch of times to describe uh dylan's voice why do you use that word Maybe it's a little projection. I think if I were on stage singing, I'd have to be smirking so that people didn't look at me and say, are you taking, are you, you really believe this? Are you taking yourself seriously? Because, you know, given that this guy came up in publicly in the early 60s, got early associated with being prophetic and truth-telling, and I've never thought that was the primary purpose of, of his voice. I think what's always going on is, is a, I can't believe I'm singing this to you. <laughs> Um, no matter what kind of uh, persona he's, he's he's affecting at that particular moment, and it, and to watch to watch him sing a song, even to watch him actually just speak to people, he's usually got a downcast face. But there'll always be like a little not not a lip curl that's too Elvis, but a a fleeting smirk in, in a given utterance, as though I don't want to claim that one is more authentic or real than the other, but the, the shift in and out of 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 that smirk is it, it's always there and it's very fun to hear and it suggests that he's like he's he's having fun i don't know you know having fun who you've been loving since i've been gone long tall man with a red coat on Good for nothing, baby, you've been doing me wrong You've been loving since I've been gone You've been loving since I've been gone Who's been playing around with you? Don't care what you do, don't care what you say, don't care where you go, or how long you stay. Someday, baby, you ain't gonna worry for me anymore. You take my money and you turn me out, you fill me up. 
I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. We just heard two tracks recorded in 2000 and 2006 respectively by Bob Dylan, the subject of tonight's vocal investigation. The first song was Red Cadillac and Black Moustache and the second was Someday Baby. And my guest on this evening's show is Devon Strolovich. And don't forget that detailed playlist information about the tracks you're hearing tonight can be found at voicebox-media.org. Over the decades, people have maintained that Dylan isn't a very good singer, at least in the traditional sense of the word, and people accuse him of slurring and mumbling during his concerts. But I gather, Devon, that you see this characteristic of Dylan's voice as being an asset rather than an impediment to his greatness. How do you make that case? Well, I won't make it always. He does sometimes slur and mumble. There are some infamous shows in the early 90s where it's not clear what he was thinking when he was the band was playing and the words were only coming out piecemeal. Mm. Um, but he, there are other times when forgotten lyrics turns into a sort of remarkable vocal improvisation. Mm-hmm. And one of the hallmarks, so, so in concert, this happens all the time. From the very beginning, sort of flubbed lyrics and, and interesting ways to make that up. Um, strange articulations, strange emphases, and things like that. But every once in a while in a studio environment, he uses this to great effect. Um, improvising near lyrics, you know, plausible English syllables Mm -hmm. that our brains hear as words because it's very disturbing to hear a human being speak to us in a language we think we're supposed to understand and not actually perceive those words. So we make patterns out of it. But there are these recordings uh, in the studio where that's not the case. And he's, he's creating a whole atmosphere and evoking a whole narrative without speaking. Hmm. Pro- and any kind of recognizable English. That was an excerpt from I'm Not There, an example of Dylan's hallmark non-singing style, as we'll call it, which some people take as a sign of his vocal genius and others take as a sign of his incompetence on the singing front. Despite the fact that there will always be people who think that Dylan can't sing, it's become more fashionable in recent years to praise the vocalist for his singing rather than deride him. In Rolling Stone magazine's 100 Greatest Singers of All Time list, for instance, in 2008, Dylan came in at number seven. The accompanying essay claimed that the artist, quote, changed popular singing. What do you think of this assertion, Devon? He changed popular singing. There's no question there. It became... Uh, okay to not have those hallmark characteristics of a voice worth listening to. I don't, I don't know that Dylan sought to do this. I think, again, it's just the effect of his limited anatomy that he had certain capabilities that only lent it so, went so far in, in creating a certain voice. Uh, so I don't think he had an intention to break, break down the Bing Crosby, you know, Frank Sinatra type of perfect singing or anything like that. But he changed it. There's no question that in his wake came uh, all sorts of people with voices that would, were not conventionally pretty. Well, Devin, it's been so much fun chatting with you about the great Bob Dylan 
this evening. Thanks so much for being here and taking us on this wonderful journey. Thank you. This has been so much fun. You can find out more about Devon's wonderful weekly public radio series, Fog City Blues, which airs on KALW on Wednesday evenings from 9 till 11pm at fogcityblues.com. Devon can also be followed on Twitter via the handle at fogcityblues. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Please support Voicebox. Find out how you can become a member of our special inner circle for as little as $5 a month or make a one-time donation by visiting voicebox-media.org. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to us are tax deductible. Send us your questions and comments to info at voicebox-media.org and please connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're looking for me on Twitter, my handle is at Chloe Veltman. To remind us that no two Bob Dylan recordings of a song are the same, I'd like to play us out with snippets of three different versions of his famous tune, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. The first comes from the artist's 1962 album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. The second is an up-tempo arrangement of the song from a 1975 review. And the final version comes from a live tour in 1976. Have a songful week. Oh, where have you been? My blue-eyed son And where have you been My darling young one I've stumbled on the side Of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I crawled On six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle Of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans 